Scripture calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. What does this prophecy really point to? How does it affect Israel, or for that matter, those of us living elsewhere? Today on The Land and the Book, we're going to be reminded that God has made known to us the end from the beginning, and that things aren't spiraling downward, but are actually looking up. Welcome to The Land and the Book. Our host is a guy who loves both the land of Israel and the Bible. He is Dr. Charlie Dyer, and I'm John Geiger. Great to connect, Charlie, and as always, a very full week. Lots of stories in this opening segment that we've labeled Current Events. John, it's great being with you, and you're exactly right. It's amazing how much is coming out of the Middle East, even as we have these changes taking place in our own country this week. Well, story one, reports have surfaced in the Middle East suggesting Israel is drawing up plans to strike Iran's nuclear program. Charlie, how reliable are these reports, and could such an attack be imminent? You know, the report is reliable in the sense that it matches public statements from a government minister in Israel who warned that Israel could attack the Islamic Republic if the U.S. rejoins the nuclear deal with Iran. Now, it would actually be quite surprising if Israel didn't have plans for a military option should Iran attempt to build a nuclear weapon. Remember, Israel attacked the Osirak nuclear reactor in Iraq during the time of Saddam Hussein. And they also attacked and destroyed a secret nuclear reactor being built by Syria. For Israel, allowing these enemies to obtain nuclear weapons is a red line that can't be crossed. Now, having said all that, it's quite possible the report was intentionally leaked by the Israeli government to the newspaper and was intended to send a message, perhaps to Iran and to the United States. It was a warning to Iran that the decisions they've been making to increase the level of uranium enrichment and to produce uranium metal are actions that are dangerously close to crossing that red line of Israel and could cause them to attack. It was also something of a cautionary warning to the United States. If the new administration doesn't stand up to Iran, Israel could be forced to act unilaterally, and that could have unintended consequences for U.S. forces in the region and for the U.S. economy, since Iran would likely retaliate by trying to disrupt the shipment of oil out of that region. But back to the question, is an attack imminent? Well, it could be, but this is similar to the rhetoric Israel used during the Obama administration to try to get the U.S. to stand firm against Iranian demands. And remember, back then the U.S. and Israel did cooperate together. They developed the Stuxnet virus, for example, that helped slow down Iran's nuclear program. So while Israel could indeed launch an attack against Iran's nuclear facilities, I suspect they'll first try to work with the new administration to see if credible changes to that previous nuclear agreement can be established to keep Iran from developing nuclear weapons. Uh, We do need to remember, though, that Israel's goal is to keep Iran from becoming a greater threat in the region. So, Charlie, obvious follow-up. Any further indications of how we might expect the United States to respond to Iran's nuclear situation over the next several weeks? Well, I don't think we're actually seeing everything the U.S. is doing even right now. I suspect the administration is quietly talking with both the Iranians and with Israelis. The key will be to see how the U.S. chooses to respond to the pressure put on them from both sides. President Biden has said if Iran returns to the terms of the nuclear agreement, he'll remove the economic sanctions. Iran has said if the U.S. first removes the sanctions, then they'll return to the agreement. So watch to see who blinks first. That'll go a long way towards seeing how serious the U.S. is in demanding that Iran comply with the agreement. In Senate confirmation hearings this week, two of President Biden's top aides said there would not be a quick and sudden return to the deal. 
President Biden has also said he wants Iran to reduce its missile program and to stop fomenting turmoil in the Middle East. So watch to see if Iran agrees to any modifications in the nuclear agreement to add additional curbs on those actions. You'll hear many say that getting Iran to return to the agreement is a very important diplomatic move. But remember, even when they were supposedly in compliance, Israel discovered a treasure trove of documents in Tehran showing that Iran had been cheating. No matter what gets said publicly, I think the key going forward will be how strong our country is in making sure we won't tolerate Iranian attempts to cheat on the nuclear deal or to cause further disruption in the region. And I'm sure they'll push to see how far they can go with the new administration. If you just joined us, this is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, noted Middle East expert. I'm John Gager, noted admirer of Charlie and all his knowledge. We're looking at current (laughs) events unfolding this week. Well, uh, Charlie, Israel appears to be heading toward the home stretch in terms of containing the COVID virus. That's good news. Now, what impact could that have on tourism in 2021? Yeah, Israel has been leading the world in vaccinating its population, with over a third of the population having already been vaccinated. One senior health official said Israel is now in the final stages of the coronavirus pandemic, though other health officials disputed that statement. They thought it was a little too optimistic. By late March, though, they plan to have vaccinated 5.2 million citizens. The vaccinations are already starting to have an impact, though Israel is also battling the new, more infectious strain of the virus from England. Over 75% of the population over 60 have already received at least one of the two doses of the vaccine. And as a result, the percentage of those over 60 who are seriously ill has started to drop. Israel has announced that citizens will be exempt from quarantine one week after receiving the second vaccine dose. And they're finalizing plans for a so-called green passport that will be given to Israelis who've been vaccinated. Now, they've not yet revealed how they plan to open the country to tourists, though some ideas have been suggested. One option is to require all tourists to be tested within 72 hours before traveling to Israel and then getting tested again on arrival. A company in Israel has developed a COVID-19 breathalyzer test that's as precise as a nasal swab and that can provide results within 10 seconds. A second option is to develop an international version of their green passport, which would allow entry for tourists who can demonstrate proof of having been vaccinated. Uh, Right now, it's not clear which path Israel will choose, but once they get the pandemic under control, one of their next steps in reopening the economy will be to revitalize the tourism industry. Now, hopefully, that'll start happening in April or May. From my perspective, John, it can't happen soon enough. Oh, for sure. Born out of tragedy when 10 Israelis drowned in a flash flood, an Israeli nonprofit has developed an emergency system to try to prevent similar tragedies in the future. Tell us about this uh, latest innovation coming out of Amazing Israel, Charlie. Yeah, John, three years ago, a storm hit Israel, causing a flash flood that roared down a canyon in the Judean wilderness. Twenty-five teenagers on a hike through the wilderness were caught in that flood, and as you noted, 10 of them died. One problem was that cell phone coverage in the wilderness is very spotty, especially when hiking in the deep canyons, and that made help slow to arrive. Out of that tragedy, an educational nonprofit developed an off-grid, solar-powered Wi-Fi system called SOS Wi-Fi. 
In essence, the system is a series of emergency Wi-Fi hotspots that are placed along hiking trails with little or no cellular reception. An antenna is placed on high ground and it focuses a wireless signal toward the device, allowing cell phones to connect through it to the internet at that spot. More than 20 of these devices are now being piloted in a dozen nature reserves in cooperation with Israel's Nature and Parks Authority. The group has plans to install 40 more by the end of the year and eventually to have 300 of these devices in various locations around Israel. And the system has already proven its worth. A tour guide leading a group collapsed and a member of the group was able to use the Wi-Fi signal to send a video of the incident to emergency services. The group hopes to market the device internationally and to use the proceeds to help expand their activities in Israel. Using technology to expand services and save lives, that's just the kind of innovation we've come to expect out of Amazing Israel. Well, you mentioned rainfall, and that's always a significant issue for lots of reasons in Israel. What are the latest trends and what's going on? Yeah, you know, after a good start to the winter, Israel went through a month with virtually no rain. But the past two weeks have seen several storm systems move through, even bringing some flooding. Many reporting stations are showing year-to-date rainfall amounts close to normal, though Jerusalem is still below average. More importantly, though, the water level in the Sea of Galilee is rising. Right now, it's a little over three feet below the upper red line. That's when they need to open the dam at the southern end to keep the lake from flooding the towns along the shore. They're optimistic that if the rain keeps falling, they'll open the dam later in the spring, and that would be the first time it's been opened since 2013. John, rain is a blessing in Israel, so let's hope God keeps blessing them this way. And that's a look at current events from the Middle East. Charlie, uh, later on, your devotional takes us to an amazing city still today in Israel. Where is that place, and what are we going to look at? Yeah, we're heading to the eastern end of the Jezreel Valley to the city of Beit Shan, Israel's version of Pompeii. But unfortunately, we're going to be there to look at a memorial to failure. Hmm. That's all ahead on the land and the book. And before that, though, a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Donna Van Leer, The Time of Jacob's Trouble. I think you'll find it encouraging. Don't let that title throw you off. Plus, Charlie's answers to your questions and a whole lot more to come on today's edition of The Land and the Book. Stick around, won't you? And let a friend know about The Land and the Book. day at work turns into a nightmare for Emma Grady when her favorite patient and several colleagues vanish in front of her. Fear turns to chaos as Emma begins the frantic race from Brooklyn to Queens, anxious to discover if her boyfriend is safe. Subways are closed, graves are open, and countless people have inexplicably disappeared. What's happening? You'll find out as you stick here with us on The Land and the Book. Welcome to segment two, I'm John Geiger, and I promise we're going to find out what's going on with all those disappearances and open graves. First, though, let's put our heads together on creative ways that you and I can share our faith. So what should you keep in mind when you're having a conversation with a Jewish friend? Well, one really critical thought from Cynthia Strahl. She and her husband, Dan, are with Olive Tree Congregation, a thriving ministry in the Chicago suburbs. What's that one thing we should keep in mind, Cynthia? 
Well, one thing that occurred to me in my life was you never know. The person that you're sharing with, the most unlikely person that you're ever going to meet is a Jewish person. Like, you'll never see them coming to the Lord. You never know what God is doing in their lives, in their heart, even if they don't show it. And you never know what plans he has for them and how he wants to use that person as a redeemed servant Mm -hmm. of the Most High to serve him and to further the kingdom of God. I think about that uh, when I was sharing with my now husband, Dan, when he was an unsaved Jewish ski bum, <laughs> a most unlikely fellow. And look what happened when the Lord saved him and, ha- and called him into ministry. The same with his, um, his mom, who lived with us for several years. And she said, even if it's true, I'll never believe it. Mm. And then she came to faith at 86, and Dan got to immerse her. So you never know. So don't limit God by your own unbelief and fear. But what a neat word of encouragement. You never know. I mean, God has a plan. This is his thing anyway. That's right. And we get to be part of it. It's hilarious. You never know. You Step never up. Know. Reach out. <laughs> Have that conversation. That's our encouragement here at The Land and the Book. And we say thank you to Cynthia Stroll. Thanks so much, John. Donna Van Leer is an accomplished New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with 19 published books. Six novels have been turned into made-for-TV movies. She's an in-demand conference speaker, gifted teacher, but the title that she likes best is Mom. We welcome you to the land of the book, Donna, even though you uh, you bring us trouble. Oh, <laughs> well, thank you. I do. I do, but in a good way. That's thank right. You, John. That's trouble. For listeners unfamiliar with this Bible term, the time of Jacob's trouble, to what are we referring We're referring to what Jesus referred to as the end of the age. Jeremiah actually used the term the time of Jacob's trouble because it's when God deals once and for all with his people, his chosen people, who he made covenant with in the time of Abraham. And Jeremiah calls that the time of Jacob's trouble. It's called several things throughout the Bible. But again, Jesus refers to it as the end of the age in Matthew 24. Well, tell us more about Emma. This is the person we referenced in our introduction. A lot going on in her life. And open graves, that's got to be more than shocking. Right. Well, um, what I did with this book, John, when I was growing up, and may have happened when you were growing up as well, you would hear a pastor, visiting pastor, visiting missionary, and they would say things like, Jesus is coming again, Christ is returning, things like that. And then as I became an adult, I realized, hey, Nobody talks about that anymore. (laughs) Nobody references the return of Christ, you know, the soon return of Jesus. And as I was sitting in church one Sunday, I thought, wow, how many times have I heard this exact same message? But I would have to check my spirit, John, and say, okay, there may be someone else here who has not heard this particular message about the prodigal son or the good Samaritan or Mm -hmm. Jesus walking on the water, whatever. But I found myself doing that Sunday after Sunday, and then one Sunday it was kind of like an epiphany where it was literally like God was saying, nobody's talking about this anymore. Mm -hmm. You know, there are very few churches that are talking about this. And I began to study the, the prophecies in great detail from the Bible, John. I was just ripping apart the Old Testament, the New Testament, and Revelation, and really studying it. And then it was as if God deposited the idea in my heart Mm. to write a book, which is The Time of Jacob's Trouble, and make it part novel for those who 
who would not just pick up a prophecy book, mm-hmm. John. They're not going to go right. to Christian bookstore or off of Amazon buy a prophecy book. They might buy this fiction book, but in the back of the book is the biblical teaching about what you just read in the novel part of the book. Yes, I noticed that. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, so for millennials who have probably not heard the messages of the soon return of Jesus, because when I was sitting there in church, I thought, wow, it's been decades since I've heard this, mm-hmm. since I've heard a pastor talk about this. And I'm not saying it's all pastors. Obviously, some right. pastors do. Um, but I thought, if it's been decades for me, that means the millennials haven't heard it, and Generation Z really has not heard the messages that Jesus is coming again. So that's how this book came about. And you ask about Emma, and Emma lives in New York City. She lives with her boyfriend. She has friends. They're they're caught up in, you know, in living and doing jobs and doing life together like we all are. She works in a rehabilitation facility, and suddenly her patient literally vanishes right in front of her Mm -hmm. as she is working on her. And so that's when chaos kind of grips the city and ends up gripping the world. And what that is, is what the Bible refers to as Jesus snatching, Jesus seizing all of the bride of Christ, all of those who are what the Bible says in Christ. Mm -hmm. So we kind of take off from there throughout the book. And again, at the end of the book, the biblical teaching to take you right into the word to know where all that came from. The best-selling author of The Christmas Shoes now explores a future world facing its final days in the time of Jacob's trouble. We're talking with Donna Van Leer. People might ask, how does this book differ from Jerry Jenkins' Left Behind series? What's your reply? Well, I never read those books, but it is my understanding they are pure fiction from beginning to end. And again, with this one, the last third of the book, quarter to one-third of the book, is the biblical teaching. I didn't want to leave the reader just thinking, oh, well, you know, that was an interesting fiction book, Yeah. but, you know, I, I don't know anything about it, that sort of thing. I wanted them to, in the back of the book, to see, no, this is actually in the Bible. This is in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. Yes. It goes all the way through, I mean, begins in Genesis, goes all the way through to the book of Revelation, and a lot of people, John, want to make the book of Revelation, they want to make it allegory. Oh, it's just, it's just a story. It's just about, you know, sin in our life. That's the beast, is sin in our life, that sort of thing. But we're told seven times in Revelation, it's prophecy. And the number seven represents completion. It represents perfection in the Bible. And God is telling us, not once, not twice, not four times, seven times, Revelation is a book of prophecy. It Mm -hmm. will happen. It will unfold in God's time. What's a key turning point in this story? Maybe the thing that makes Emma or one of her friends say, hmm, maybe there is something to all this Bible stuff. Well, for her particular, her mother was a believer. And so she would go to church with her mother when she was visiting back home in Indiana. She would go and she would visit and her mother would talk to her about these things. But, of course, she never wanted to listen. It was just fantasy, you know, science fiction, that sort of thing. So she never wanted to believe. And oddly enough, the the patient that she was working on the day that she vanished was also a believer and would talk to her, Um, you know, not in a dogmatic way, but just that she knew that she was a believer, she was a follower of Christ. So it was just these those two people 
who made that impression on her. Um, and oddly enough, the the woman who vanished, it, within her bag, she carried her Bible, and Emma grabbed her bag out of the rehabilitation room that day. So she ended up with this woman's Bible, mm. and so she began to pour through it in the days after Jesus seized his followers. So that's that was kind of her turning point was, hey, my mom and Mrs. Ramos, they both believe there's something here. I can't put my finger on it. I don't know what it is, but there's something here. The book also closely follows the lives of two Jewish men. Give us some background here. Yes, um, it's uh, Elliot and Zira. Zira is in uh, the nation of Israel. Elliot is in New York City. And they are Jews, and they are part of the 144,000 that is referenced in Revelation 7 and in Revelation 14. And it's 144,000. They are pure men. They are wholly devoted to Jesus. And specifically, we are told that they come from the 12 tribes of Israel. It doesn't say these men come from the church. It doesn't say they're Gentiles. They come from the 12 tribes of Israel. Mm. And they will be scattered all over the world, and they will, be, they, they will have the gospel message to proclaim to people. And what's fascinating about that is that God had intended for the Jews to be a light to the Gentiles. We know that from Isaiah. That was their intention. It was, it's what they were supposed to do. The Jews rejected Jesus, and Jesus grafted in the Gentiles. If you remember, mm-hmm. John and the Gentiles took that light. The Gentiles began to bear fruit. But at the end, in Revelation, what do we see? We see those Jews being a light to the Gentiles, those Jews bearing fruit. Donna Van Leer is an accomplished New York Times and USA Today bestselling author with 19 published books. Six novels have been turned into made-for-TV movies. Early in the conversation, Donna, you referenced the fact that uh, your impression is that, that the return of Jesus isn't just being talked about very much these days, particularly in, in our pulpits. Let me ask you, uh, how do you think our lives would be different if we lived with more of a sense of Christ's imminent return? You know, even in, in Luke 21, Jesus, he gives signs to his disciples. They ask him when they were looking out over the, the temple grounds, and, and he told them one day, not one stone is going to be left standing and they said, well, what will be the sign of your coming? And of, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And in Matthew 24, in Mark 13, and in Luke 21, he lists the signs, John, all the signs that would be prevalent in the time prior to his return. And, he, and then he says, when you see these things begin to take place, look up, mm-hmm. raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. And John, when we look around the world, we not only see that these signs have begun, they are all converging at one time. Jesus even references in Luke 21:11, he references pestilences. And if you look up that word pestilence, it means plague. It is a virulent disease that is highly contagious and spreads. Well, what does that sound like? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Right. What have we been living in since since March? And I do wish that there would be more Christian radio, more programs in general that would talk about that and say, hey, what is happening is just Mm -hmm. one of those signs that Jesus talks about. We know this isn't going to be the last 
pestilence. This right. isn't going to be the last virus. There's going to be more. But Jesus says, when you see these things happen, look up, because I'm about to return. So I do wish we could get back to that again, not only from the pulpit, but believers in general to talk about it. Oh, what's interesting, John, because it just flew into my mind. I was talking with, with a woman recently, and she said, and, and kind of like as if she was chewing on lemon, she said, oh, I read that book, The Time of Jacob's Trouble. <laughs> I said, oh, yeah? And she said, well, yes. And she listed her denomination, and she said, we don't think that those are things that need to be talked about, but we're just supposed to live our lives and, and let all that play out hmm. as is. Wow. Yeah, but part of that is that we are supposed to be salt and light to yes. people. We are supposed to be telling people the gospel message like, hey, do you see all these things happening? That's in the Bible. Yeah. <laughs> Jesus said all these things were going to happen. Not only have they begun to happen, they're all happening at once. Everything is happening. But he also says in there, John, if you notice, he doesn't say, when you see these things begin to happen, be afraid. Mm. Be very, very afraid. He doesn't say that. <laughs> he says, straighten up, look up, yeah. because your redemption is near. And we're told in Titus, we're supposed to be looking for our blessed hope. He's our Redeemer. He's our Savior. We're supposed to be looking for that blessed hope. We're not supposed to be crouched in the corner mm. in fear from what the media is telling us. And if I could just encourage everyone Turn off the media, try to get off the social media, because they're just instigators of fear. Yeah. And that's a great way to land this conversation on the time of Jacob's trouble. Trouble for sure, and yet, as you've pointed out so well, great news for Christians. Our visit today with Donna Van Leer, who's written The Time of Jacob's Trouble from Harvest House. We encourage you to check it out. Information about Donna and the book at our website, thelandandthebook.org. We're back with questions, maybe one of yours, next. Questions and answers. That's this segment next on The Land and the Book. Welcome back. I'm John Geiger, excited to be finding out what's been puzzling you. You know, when you open the Word of God, uh, you just can't help but have questions. I do. What you do then? Well, you have to turn to a resource like Charlie Dyer and The Land and the Book, where your question is welcome anytime with a quick email. I'll share that with you later on. All right, here's Roger's question. Since none of the Hebrews who left Egypt over 40 years old ultimately saw the promised land, were all those in that generation who didn't believe God unbelievers, or were they lost individuals who didn't make it to heaven? How would you describe them? Yeah, I think we need to distinguish between the physical deliverance of the nation from Egypt and the spiritual salvation of each individual Israelite. Now, what I mean is this, God delivered the entire nation from Egypt, but that doesn't necessarily mean every single Israelite who came out of Egypt was born again in a spiritual sense. Now, that's not exactly the question you're asking, but I think if we remember this, it does help answer the question. Uh, in actual fact, we have no idea how many of those who came out of Egypt with Moses will actually be in heaven because we're never told their individual spiritual condition. But as a nation, they'd experienced salvation from Egypt, only to be barred from entering the promised land because of their continued disobedience. Now, there's one New Testament passage that I think does help a little. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul uses the nation of Israel as an object lesson for believers in Corinth. 
In verses 1 to 4, he stresses the reality that the entire nation was all baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. But then Paul says, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. And Paul explains the sins they committed were the same sins being committed by the believers in Corinth. And Paul says these things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us. Uh, One chapter later, he explains that some in Corinth were also experiencing God's physical judgment because of sin uh, in regard to their misuse of the Lord's table. He says that's why many of you are weak and sick and a number of you have fallen asleep. Uh, The bottom line is we need to distinguish between Israel's national salvation from Egypt and each individual Israelite's spiritual deliverance or salvation from sin. Uh, Nationally, they were redeemed, but They weren't allowed to go into the promised land because of that disobedience. But we just don't know the individual spiritual condition of each person. Some could have been carnal believers like the Christians in Corinth, and some could have been spiritually unredeemed and lost. But that's just not the focus of the Old Testament account. Hal takes us to the book of Revelation. Chapter 17, verse 10 says, There are seven kings, five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. When the first six kings fall, just about everyone says that the first five kings refer to old Rome. Hal says, I see a problem with that because the same harlot city would have to be sitting on old Rome. So it would seem to me that the six would happen at the end of the church time, and that would conflict with the fact that Christ can come any time with the rapture. Can you untangle this? Yeah, and I'll start by saying this. The, this is probably the most difficult passage in the book of Revelation to interpret. And I say that because I did my master's thesis on chapter 17 and 18 in Revelation. Here's what I would say. I think the best explanation, at least right now, it says these heads are, are both kings and mountains, uh, meaning kingdoms. And I think the best explanation as a result is to see uh, it's uh, referring to both the rulers and the kingdoms over which they rule. And he's saying these empires and these rulers are end time rulers who rise and fall in quick succession. I don't see them in the past, but in the future. Uh, So that means we simply don't know who they are right now, but they'll be revealed as the end times come. Uh, Jesus described the beginning of the end as a period when he says, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And I see all that happening in the turmoil that's described at the beginning of the seven-year tribulation period. Uh, The seventh and probably eighth head is the Antichrist. He rises to power, appears to be killed, and then appears to rise from the dead. Uh, One of the heads of the beast seems to have had a fatal wound, John says, but the fatal wound had been healed and the whole world was astonished and followed the beast. But I see all of those heads, including that final one, uh, referring to events that are going to happen still in the future. Kathleen emails us from the Mile High City, and as she listens in Denver, she says, I've been pondering Job 1, verse 6, and chapter 2, verse 2. My question, why would the holy, perfect, divine, sinless God allow vile, filthy, sinful Satan into God's council meetings and into his divine presence? Although we also are vile and sinful, we have access to God only because Jesus died on the cross for our sins. I don't understand why God would interact with Satan at all, much less allow him to attend his council meetings with the angels. Yeah, and and what I'd start by saying this. In Ezekiel 28, God created Satan perfect. Uh, He's the king of Tyre that's described there. After he sinned, God cast him out of his exalted position in heaven. Uh, But the verses don't say that Satan didn't have any access to God. What we find in Job 1, 6 and Job 2, 2 is not unlimited access to God. They describe specific times when the angels came to present themselves to the Lord. 
Uh, So was it a summons for evaluation or perhaps a summons before heaven's court? Well, we don't have enough information to know, but we do know this. Though Satan appears to have some access to God's presence right now, that limited access won't continue. Uh, In Revelation 12, John describes a war that's going to be fought in heaven still in the future when the forces, the good angels led by Michael, will defeat the fallen angels led by Satan. And on that day, Satan will lose his place in heaven and be confined to the earth or the abyss or ultimately the lake of fire for the remainder of his existence into eternity. So uh, Satan's going to go down fighting. He's going to try and destroy as much of God's creation as he can in the process. He's doing everything evil he can, but he's still subject to God's control. Here's a question, sort of along these lines. Where does the idea of hell with demons and the devil tormenting people come from? Is there a verse in the Bible that could make anyone think this? Yeah, and I have to start by saying this. Uh, The idea came, I think, from pagan mythology which saw the afterlife as a place ruled over by a god of the underworld. Uh, in Greek mythology, that name of that god was Hades or Pluto. The Romans referred to him as Orcus. But while this was the belief among pagans, that idea is not taught in the Bible. In fact, the Bible makes it clear that hell itself was created to punish fallen angels. Uh, in Second Peter 2, Peter describes a group of angels who were sent immediately to hell. He says, God didn't spare them, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. Hell is a place where demons are imprisoned. When Jesus describes the judgment of the wicked before God, he has God saying to those who are being judged in Matthew 25, depart from me, you who are accursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. In other words, the final place of judgment for unsaved humans was originally prepared as the final place of judgment for Satan and his demonic followers. So Satan and his minions are not going to be torturing the lost in hell. They will be experiencing their own torment in hell alongside unsaved humans. To a question now from Eric, who says, I listen to your great program on Kinship Radio out of Eagle Grove, Iowa. Thank you very much for that, Eric. And he says, I feel fortunate that they are now carrying your program. I look forward to it every week. Appreciate that encouragement. He says, I've been going through the books of the Old Testament. And in one of the books, one of the kings developed a health problem, and he did not seek out the Lord in his illness. My question, what is the right balance of seeking the Lord, praying, and seeking medical help when you have a chronic illness? I know that God doesn't always heal us when we pray, so how would you suggest praying when you have a chronic illness? Yeah, three passages come to mind for me. The first is 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul described his own physical problem. Now, he doesn't tell us what that problem is, but he says he experienced a thorn in the flesh, and he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it from me. God's answer to Paul was ultimately no, but the key point here is Paul asked God to heal him of his problem, whatever it might have been, multiple times. And I think from that we can get the truth that we can bring all things to God in prayer, including our physical problems, so it's not wrong to ask God to heal. But a second point in that passage is that we also need to realize sometimes God's answer to our request will be no. God has a greater good that can come from it. The second passage is 1 Timothy 5.23. Evidently, Timothy suffered from physical difficulties, probably some kind of a gastrointestinal problem. And Paul's advice to him was, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. In essence, Paul was encouraging Timothy to take the best form of medicine available at that time for intestinal problems. So the principle I see is that there are times when taking medicine is a wise course of action. It's not a lack of faith in the Lord, but an example of being wise. And the final passage is Acts 28 
where Paul and Luke were shipwrecked on the island of Malta. And here's what Luke says. He says, The chief official's father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him, and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. Uh, So Paul had the gift of healing, and he used that. But then Luke adds that others came and were cured. And the word he uses is therapeuo, which has the idea of receiving medical treatment. In other words, Paul used divine healing, but Luke was there practicing his skills as a doctor, and both were used by God. Always fascinating to hear what questions are on the minds of listeners. I've got mine, too. So thanks for emailing us. Thanks for listening to The Land and the Book. We're coming up. Charlie's back with his devotional right here. In any trip to Israel, it's one of the most scenic spots that you'll visit. What am I talking about? You'll find out in just a moment as Charlie Dyer brings us his devotional. Right now, though, let's pause and listen to this perspective from a friend who's traveled to the Holy Land, had an experience that makes them see life just a bit differently. Here's what I mean. Here, my name is Ana Duarte, and this is my Holy Land experience. During my first trip to Israel, I met Christ as the Good Shepherd in a very intimate and personal way. I experienced more the person than the place. I'm still putting together my experience in written form. I went one way, came back another. I might like to go back with what I now know. I still am speechless. Two years ago, I went with the Moody team. And just being there was incredible. The most profound experience for me was sitting in that boat on the Sea of Galilee, I could not speak. Just knowing that my Lord did the same thing. He rested in this boat. He walked on the Sea of Galilee. He lived there. was just a tremendous experience for me. I fell in love with him over and over and over again, just sitting on the Sea of Galilee. Beit Shan is an Old Testament city with a magnificent set of ruins. Producer Dan Anderson and I love to climb to the top and take in a sweeping vista of Beit Shan, but... Let's let Charlie Dyer share his story. History is punctuated with illustrations of seemingly insignificant human errors that resulted in catastrophic loss. The failure to understand the impact of a frozen O-ring or a small piece of foam brought about the loss of two space shuttles and 14 lives. In the case of the Titanic, it was a mixture of flawed technology and overconfidence in our ability to control the forces of nature. And in the case of British Petroleum's Deepwater Horizon oil rig, a deliberate disregard of safety rules resulted in the death of 11 workers and one of the greatest ecological disasters in history. Following nearly every major disaster, investigators discover a series of errors, mistakes, or miscalculations that resulted in a single catastrophic failure. Each decision along the way seemed relatively insignificant at the time but when combined together, they cascaded into a total system failure. Today's journey takes us to a spot in Israel that, to me, stands as a stark reminder of two spiritual disasters in Israel's history, catastrophic failures that resulted in needless pain, anguish, and loss of life, and yet few know the place or its spiritual significance in Israel's history. Want to know more? Well, then hop on the bus as we journey to the eastern end of the Jezreel Valley, to the city of Beit Shan. 
Beit Shan is the Pompeii of Israel. Years of excavations have uncovered the amazing remains of a large Roman Byzantine city. During the period between the Old and New Testaments, the city took on a new name, Scythopolis, City of the Scythians. It was likely named after Scythian mercenary soldiers who settled in the city during this time. By the time of Jesus, it was a thriving Gentile city, one of the cities of the Decapolis, the confederation of Hellenistic city-states, and the only one to be located on the west side of the Jordan Valley. As we walk into the remains of the theater at the site, we're struck by the grandeur of the city that once stood here. We gaze beyond the theater stage at a large colonnaded street that extends north toward the Acropolis of the city. On the left side of the street are the remains of a large bathhouse, and on the right, the Agora, the marketplace. A large number of tourists stroll along the ancient street, and a smaller number, looking like ants, have climbed to the top of the Acropolis. Look carefully at the top of the Acropolis, because that hill is actually the spot where the Old Testament city of Beitshan once stood. Picture that hill, ringed on top by a massive wall, and you can perhaps glimpse the importance this city played in Israel's history. The city guarded the main east-west road that stretched from the Mediterranean through the Jezreel Valley and across the Jordan River to the King's Highway. The town guarded one of the few places where the Jordan River could be forded, and that made it a strategic location. Which brings us back to the two catastrophic failures associated with this site. The first failure is recorded in the Book of Judges. Actually, it appears as nothing more than a brief historical footnote, a minor detail that one could easily overlook. God had commanded Israel to inhabit the land, but Judges 1 records the people's incomplete obedience. But Manasseh did not take possession of Bethshan and its villages or Ta'anak in its villages, or the inhabitants of Dor in its villages, or the inhabitants of Iblim in its villages, or the inhabitants of Megiddo in its villages. So the Canaanites persisted in living in that land. Bethshan is one in a series of fortified cities passed over by the tribe of Manasseh. These cities were well defended and hard to overcome, and there was more than enough land in the rest of the tribal allotment to meet their needs. The leaders of Manasseh must have thought that allowing the Canaanites to remain in these few cities wasn't that big a deal. Israel had captured most of the land. What harm could these few cities cause if they were cut off from the rest of the country? Sadly, the rest of the book of Judges details the heartache caused by Israel's failure to obey. As the angel of the Lord announced in Judges 2, the Canaanites left in the land became thorns in the side of Israel, rising up to subjugate and enslave God's chosen people at various times throughout the period of the judges. Israel experienced 400 years of heartache because they didn't obey God when he told them to take all the land, including Bethshan. But if the hill of Bethshan stands as a sad memorial to the period of the judges, it's an even greater witness to the failure of Israel's first king. To study the life of King Saul is to discover the tragedy of a king who never lived up to his potential. Chosen by God, anointed by Samuel, empowered by the Holy Spirit, Saul started well. But a series of personal failures, some seemingly so insignificant that they were likely overlooked by most of his peers, led to his catastrophic downfall. Saul's problems began, like the tribe of Manasseh before him, with incomplete obedience. 
He was told to wait seven days for Samuel to arrive to offer a sacrifice. Saul waited six days and 23 hours, almost the whole time, but not quite. He was commanded to destroy the Amalekites, and he wiped out most of them, but not quite all. These seem like minor variations, small flaws that would be within the tolerance of most quality control inspectors, but not if the inspector happens to be the god of the universe. God describes Saul's incomplete obedience as rebellion and insubordination. Saul's inability to fully obey God cost him the kingdom, and it ultimately cost him the lives of his sons and many of his soldiers. The book of 1 Samuel ends with a major battle between Israel and the Philistines, but God was no longer with Saul, and his forces suffered a catastrophic defeat on Mount Gilboa along the edge of the Jezreel Valley. When the battle was over, the Philistines had split Israel in two. They controlled the Jezreel Valley all the way east to the Jordan River. And as for Saul, and it came about on the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain, they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And they cut off his head and stripped off his weapons and sent them throughout the land of the Philistines to carry the good news to the house of their idols and to the people. And they put his weapons in the temple of Ashtarot and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Bethshan, the hill standing before you, became the Philistines' trophy case. The headless torsos of Saul and his sons hung from the walls atop that hill, the stench of their rotting corpses fouling the air. Only too late did Saul learn the truth that God expects his followers to obey completely. And the consequences for disobedience are too tragic to even consider as an option. It's hard to take our eyes off the hill in front of us. It stands as a solemn reminder that the consequences for disobedience are severe. We live in a world that makes excuses for failure and that seeks to minimize the consequences for mistakes. But God expects his followers to live by a higher standard. Francis Havergal captured that standard in a hymn he wrote urging Christians to remain loyal followers to God. In the second stanza of that hymn, he penned these words, True-hearted, wholehearted, fullest allegiance, yielding henceforth to our glorious King, valiant endeavor and loving obedience, freely and joyously now would we bring. Does your life stand as a testimony to faithfulness or failure? The answer ultimately depends on the decisions you make, beginning right now. Thanks, Charlie. Always a pleasure to have you listening to The Land and the Book. You can email us anytime at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Let us know how the program is impacting your life when you write The Land and the Book at moody.edu. I'm John Geiger. Thanks for listening. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.